only time when you get 100% happiness is when you're lying to everyone. If you show me the product leader where everyone is delighted with them, they're a terrible product leader. Like you're going to make controversial decisions. You're going to have to do things that people don't like. What you hope is that they look at it and say that it's fair and in the best interest of the business. You've got to be out in the field and be building empathy and learning from what customers in your field team is saying. You've got to celebrate successes as well a little bit. Pat yourself on the back. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we power the world's best enterprise software. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. Today, our guest is Dave Cole, who at the time of recording was Chief Product Officer at Tenable, but has recently left to start a stealthy startup in the security space. Dave shares his 18 years of experience building world-class products in the security ecosystem. We focus a lot of time on his role at Tenable, including what is required to manage a product portfolio versus just one product, preparing a product org for an IPO, setting up and managing a customer advisory board, and ways to drive product communication inside of a large organization. All right, Dave, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Cool. So I'd love to just jump right in and hear a little bit about your background and sort of how you got to where you are today. Sure. So originally from Michigan, graduated, took the first job that would get me out of the uh, the frozen tundra of Michigan. And it was this not so sexy job in uh, computer security back before it was called cyber. And basically it was with Deloitte and Touche and I figured good company, loved Los Angeles, just fell in love the first time I came here, had to move, had to do it, and figured I will get out of this security industry just as fast as I can. And then I'll do something super cool like web design afterwards. And this was in the uh, the heady days of 96. Um, here we are, <laughs> 2018, completely failed to get out and many, many jobs in between. So uh, Deloitte turned into a stint at a company called Internet Security Systems out of Atlanta, where I was a consultant. I did all sorts of stuff. I did penetration tests, security assessments, incident response, all working with ISS's products. And it just got to the point to where the company had lost interest in something called Vuln Assessment and the product associated with it. And I was a consultant out in the field. And I was like, why don't these knuckleheads get it? Like, customers need an enterprise version of this. And in fact, I got paid as a consultant to design that for uh, Sun Microsystems way back in the day. And as I was trying to explain to the product managers like why they should do this, I got tapped on the shoulder for a company called Foundstone, who had started a services team similar to what I was doing, but really wanted to get into product and had a development team. They just didn't have a product guy. So I figured, why not? You know. I've already felt the pain. I have full empathy with the customer, and I know what I'd want to build. It matched up pretty well to what the guys who were at Foundstone wanted to build. And away we went. And that was my transition into product um, many, many moons ago, about 18 years ago. And uh, Foundstone 
we basically took this Vuln assessment market, which had been really sort of a consultant's market at the time where they would do um, point-and-shoot security assessments of an environment and give you a big fat report, you know, hundreds of pages long that told you all the things that you were doing wrong. And we tried to turn that into a... Um, a repeatable process, like an enterprise discipline. The analogy we used was a dental one, which seemed to go over pretty well. We're like, hey, that like thing you're doing a couple times a year with the consultants, that's a lot like going to the dentist, right? This deep cleaning. But what you really need to do is brush and floss in between. And it ain't real sexy, but it's super important to know what you have, know where the vulns are. That's vuln management. And we're going to help you through that process. So that was Foundstone. And I did that for four and a half years, long enough to realize that I didn't know what I was doing. And I needed to go someplace where people had done it at scale. We did well enough to get acquired by McAfee. Uh, customers were patient and kind, and I hired some people who did know what they were doing. And it was a lot of fun, and I realized I loved products. So I went from there into Symantec pre-Veritas acquisition. The Veritas acquisition uh, happened shortly after I joined, and I joined the security response team, which was awesome, but not a quote-unquote real product job. It was about the business of security content and everything that went around it and the research organization. And it was fascinating and fun, and I did learn product at scale, and I met just some amazing people there. But ultimately, I knew I had to get back into product. I'd learned what it was like to be a product person over an internal cost center. There were things that were amazing, and there was a lot of freedom in that, but it was non-producty, as you might imagine. And I got scooped up by the consumer group, by the Norton group, to mm. come in and uh, run the Norton Antivirus, Norton Internet Security product line. So that was an uh, opportunity too good to pass up. I nearly left security at that point. And I stayed with Symantec another five years on the consumer side, which was a whole other education. Eventually um, got a really big job at Symantec. Eventually exited really big job at Symantec during a massive uh, reduction in workforce when many of the consumer folks were either let go or went off to greener pastures. And from there I went into CrowdStrike to take a run at reinventing the endpoint space, which for my time in Symantec, I felt like it wasn't really their focus. And the guys who started CrowdStrike also felt like it wasn't really McAfee's focus. And we saw this huge opportunity to, much like we took vulnerability assessment and turned it into vulnerability management, to take the endpoint space and really reinvent it for a modern era, which became fashionable to call the next-gen endpoint market. From CrowdStrike, we had an amazing run there, lots of fun, easily one of the most talented, incredible teams I worked with, and went from there to Tenable, where I am today, chief product officer over at Tenable. We recently went through an IPO in July, which has been a pretty incredible run too. So product for many, many years and security for absolutely all of those years in spite of my best efforts. Okay, that's that's amazing. So that's a, it's a very deep background, all in security. Sounds like a lot of enterprise software. So let's also dive in a little bit. What was the relationship between the consumer Norton product and like a you know an enterprise offering there? Yeah, really interesting. And this is common in the antivirus industry, and it's common elsewhere too. But one of the advantages of having a consumer brand, particularly the AV side, is you can iterate it quickly. Like you can automatically update it. And no consumer is going to complain that you just tanked their server. Oh my God, like the operational control on this is completely unsatisfactory. It's like, no, you're going to automatically push the update. The consumer is going to take it. And as long as you don't ask them to reboot, they're probably going to be pretty happy with it. It's like, sweet, awesome new bits delivered without me having to mess with it. So the beauty of that 
and I learned this when I was in that internal cost center on the security research side, is all the new security engines go in consumer out to tens of millions of people. So you see all these threats and all these things and you, you can tune the false positive rates and you can test it and you can make sure you get the performance right and you can add more things to whitelisting and kind of hone in your, your efficacy on the consumer side. And the enterprise products cycle every two to three years, probably faster, much, much faster now. Like I'm, I've been out of that game for a little bit. But even there, like, you know, people aren't going to take new stuff without testing it, without a soak period and so forth. They're going to lag. So that gap between the enterprise and the consumer product turns out to be incredibly useful for testing new capabilities, which eventually, you know, get rolled up into the slower updating enterprise product where the cost of integration and in particular, the cost of getting it wrong, the risk is much, much higher. So there's a really nice kind of ecosystem there of try it in the smaller product, test it there that's more fault tolerant, there where it's less expensive, evolve it, and when it's pretty well baked, move it up into the mid-market, into the enterprise offering. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's almost like we, we do it today with feature flagging, right? Sometimes with your you know, non-enterprise customers, you roll out some features first, get some real-world use cases, and then roll it out to the enterprise customer. But so... You know, beyond just like being able to use that as a test bed and to get you know, get data, was there a relationship from a sales channel? Was there like features? Was it the same bits that you just were adding on top of enterprise functionality? Like, how did it relate from a product perspective? Yeah, so this is something that's pretty common for big portfolios, particularly in the security industry. You'll have a team that sits in the middle, like a security technologies group (STG). Something we're doing, we do at Tenable as well, where you have shared engines that are literally the same across products. You know, a vulnerability scanning engine doesn't need to change fundamentally, whether it's in, you know, Security Center or whether it's in Tenable IO, our new cloud offering. One happens to be on prem, <laughs> one happens to be cloud. Security engine can be shared. It was the same thing with Norton and Symantec, and I'm sure it is today where the security engines, interestingly, because they move faster, the consumer team actually drives the security engine development itself. The enterprise team later largely just picks it up. Now, do they have to add some customization on it at times and customer-driven whitelisting? Sure. Grandma Jones on the consumer side does not need to like test security engines before they rolled out or make sure their custom app is whitelisted. You know? So they add on more manageability and more things that are friendly to the enterprise. But it's super helpful when you reach scale with a product line, particularly a security one, but I'm sure it's the same thing elsewhere, that you have a shared components group that effectively is an internal development group where you have multiple teams as the customer. Pretty common. And so, you know, even in that same regard, we're organizations adopting the consumer version of the, you know, vulnerability or like antivirus and then upselling themselves into enterprise or the business version. How did that work? Yeah, you know, it's something that was more of a focus around the time I was leaving. It was one of those where it happened kind of accidentally. But as more and more people started to do BYOD and use their own devices that may have had Norton on it already, there came to be like much more awareness around, hey, we should smoothly provide a path from small business into mid-sized business and enterprise. But a lot of times, like corporate structure kind of defies what would otherwise be super logical because you have an enterprise team that's doing their own thing. The consumer team's over here using different sales channels. In Symantec's case, we had like a commercial mid market team that was mostly cloud oriented. 
and the progression across the full company portfolio was jagged to say the least. But, you know, it's the sort of thing when you're a smaller organization, you're not so siloed out, you have a good shot of doing. So yeah, we're, we're working on that quite a bit in Tenable right now, trying to provide like logical migration paths up. Oh yeah, because I'm, I'm sure within the political constraints of an organization where there's different teams that are comp differently based on the performance of their product, it's probably all these different like, you know, misincentives to like not allow that to happen, right? You want people to keep using your product, not move on to some other line of businesses offering. Oh, massively. Yeah, and the one piece that I think a lot of them don't get right that as I took, I had the whole portfolio for a period of time, you looked at it, and one of the things we wanted to do was come up with a common management framework. So everybody will abstract out the engines and the engines will sit in the security technology group, but why wouldn't the management APIs be the same? Because if the management APIs were the same, you could just seamlessly migrate them up into more mid-market or enterprise-friendly console that gave them additional features, and you just sort of unlocked things inside the agent and so forth. But yeah, when you don't have that mentality, yeah. when you're not, you know, when you don't have empathy with the customers who are going through that growth cycle, or maybe there's an acquisition and M and A and the rest of it, it's just you just you don't pay any attention to it. Yeah, so it's it's like I think this is probably less of a problem today with most software not being like desktop software, right? With it mainly being like SaaS and cloud and yeah. sort of like, so you can, you're kind of always using the same bits. Rarely are you, do you have like totally separate code bases that are driving different APIs or something yeah. else like that. So Yeah, and I think in fairness to Symantec, they've moved heavily in that direction. Sure. I'm, I'm long long gone since 2013. A few things have changed over there in the last half decade. But always, always great lessons to, to learn, so... Let's just touch on your time at CrowdStrike a little bit as well. Because from what I know of CrowdStrike, it's sort of a fairly heavily services-oriented business too. Is that right? Well, Foundstone and CrowdStrike started as services plays. Oh, okay. And always with the intention of building product. And I'll say, like, I've done product companies that dabbled in services later, and I've done, you know, companies, I've done Foundstone and CrowdStrike, where they had strong, like, strong services to begin with. And I love having a strong services team. First off, you can cheat. As a product leader, your services team is right there. They're using the product. They have incredible feedback. They're out with the customer. Like you can ask them questions that you'd otherwise have to like, you'd have to be careful asking a customer because you don't want to look dumb, right? Or or it's hard to find them or you got to track them down and get to them and have the salesperson on the call or so forth. When it's like Sally in services who's sitting right next to you in the office, you're like, hey, Sally, what do you think about this? Can we show you something? And they love it because they're getting direct access to the product and the engineering team. The engineering team loves it because there's this customer sitting right next to them. And the amazing thing from a sales perspective too is if the consultants are happy with the product and they're using it on customer site, like it's an easy sell. It's like, hey, here's this product we just used to perform your engagement. Like we can just leave it here for you. They've already done a partial install. It's the world's best proof of concept, right? I mean, it's it's pretty um, it's a pretty cool model. There's pitfalls there, and I've seen companies do it wrong, where they end up. Like splintering the product or just chasing what the consultants want, which is different than what the actual customer wants. So you have to be careful that you build a consultant's tool, that you splinter your product. But having said that, if you can pull it off, 
and really harness that feedback, you get fast proof of concepts, you get great feedback quickly. You know, you just have to have the discipline not to like just do what the consultants say. Because, you know, make no mistake, they have their own perspective, their one persona. So the trick as a product leader in that scenario is at what point is the consultant like an effective proxy for the actual voice of the customer? And in what area is that the voice of the consultant? <laughs> and they may be right, but are you more inclined right now? Do you need to? Is your business imperative to solve the problem of the consultant <laughs> or the customer who's actually using the product? So I think we got a lot of it wrong when we were at Foundstone, like I wasn't, it was my first product job. I don't think we made anybody happy. I think we equally dissatisfied consultants and customers, but it was something that we were, um, I think the the founding team at CrowdStrike was really conscious of because of previous experience. And it was something that I was conscious of too, having kind of wandered off the path and watched a few others do the same in the meantime. That's really cool. I, I hadn't thought about that as a sort of strategic advantage for product development in engineering, to, to be able to be so close to your customers and really thinking about it that way is to a great point of view. I like that a lot. One thing I think was is interesting, sort of how you got to Tenable, because I know that it was sort of through a, a relationship, right, with a board member maybe? Is that right? Yeah, I just finished working with CrowdStrike and parted ways and became aware of a project at Excel through a friend, um, not through the Excel guys initially, but in uh, the official way that most great projects are started over beers on University Ave in Palo Alto. So this LA story traces its roots back to University Ave, I think the crown and rose, if I get the name right. And I was out with friends and uh, the next day my buddy called me up and said, hey, there's this uh, you know, friend at Excel contacted me and he's got a project. They need some help over at Tenable. So uh, thus began, you know, the next chapter, which was Tenable. And I'd started out as a consultant. I was um, dead set on starting my own company, but for a whole bunch of reasons, it became obvious that I didn't need to start a company at that time, but I needed a job. <laughs> so when I fell in love with the Tenable opportunity at the time, with the team that was there and with the opportunity that it represented, and it turned out one of the guys from Excel was, was shared across. He was on both boards, mm. both CrowdStrike and Tenable, which made it easy and comfortable for everyone. So, Cool. And then you, you came in initially as the chief product officer right away, right? I did, yeah. So it was interesting. I came in initially as a consultant and was hired on July 1st of uh, 2016 as chief product officer. And uh, away we went. And the job was take this incredible business and it was super impressive financially, but there was some work to be done on the portfolio. There was some work to be done on the product strategy. We were doing a lot of things and we had to kind of fine tune and hone the product strategy at the time. And there was a number of things. There was the thought that, hey, you know, we want to take this company public at some point. And I kind of had a sense around the timing, but we didn't have a CEO. So we had to get a CEO first and we had to clean up marketing and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I came on as CPO, originally running product marketing, engineering, product management with a charter to build out a bunch of other things, program management, design. We were missing a few things at the time. So, Yeah. And you, you mentioned earlier that you have a framework that you use for like approaching some of that customer input and feature requests. So beyond telemetry, I'm guessing that there's some stuff that you do when you think about enterprise features and how to what to build next. Can you talk a little about that framework? Yeah, yeah, it's a um, a blend of qualitative and quantitative, and it has like varying fidelity. So 
this is going to be a little long, so prepare yourself for a mini mini monologue here. So first off, we'll go on the um, on the quant side. You know, like I just said, there's no substitute for having the UI instrumented, and also for having things like installers instrumented, like having install fail codes and everything else, and having them come back. Having you know good telemetry, privacy respectful telemetry data coming back from the product is absolutely essential. A lot of people think that they don't have time for it early, and then you end up paying a heck of a lot more for it later, like startups everywhere, like embed your telemetry early, and you'll thank yourself later. So the product telemetry, classic area for underinvestment or late investment when it's way more expensive, and it's so much easier now. And it's so incredibly cool when it's working, you know, and you don't even have to instrument everything, like figure out what the key questions are. What are your key like market hypotheses and instrument it there at least, you know, and get a running start. It's really, really powerful. And it short circuits a lot of painful conversations if you can just have the data. So that's a, that's a really key one. We use Net Promoter Score. I know there's a bunch of different philosophies out there, but Net Promoter Score will give you um, trailing indicators of sentiment. To me, having whether it's Qualtrics or NPS or whatever you're using, to me, having customer SAT scoring that's outside of support is important. So, so we you're do like that. popping that up in the product, or what, how are you doing? Email, this? email, okay. Yeah, do it over email at six months intervals. And you have to make it simple. So we've learned a few things about it. You got to make it simple. We've tried longer form ones where you ask a whole bunch of questions. We didn't end up learning that much, and we drove down response rates. Just ask the standard NPS question. Ask the standard question and open ended. Maybe one or two open ended yeah. and done and dusted. You know, you want as much response rates as as you can, particularly if you're navigating a product line transition like we have been. And, and are you are you reaching out to both yeah. ends of the spectrum on if they score low or if they score really high? To like understand why for both, particularly the low. Okay. You know, well, like most companies, we do a better job of, and most humans, we go after the problems rather than the massive successes. You know, so the CSM team, the support team, reach out to the people who are clearly in pain. And I have a good stiff drink before I read all those myself. It it just hurts, you know, when you have to read through the painful stuff. And of course, like you see the good stuff and your eyes skip over it, you know, it's like punitive. It's like, oh, there's no problem to solve there. You know, you don't congratulate yourself. It's like straight to the pain. Yeah. That's because that's as product people, that's what you care about, right? You're like, tell me what what's the opportunity to make something better? That's what yeah. I want. You, you learn over time that you've got to celebrate successes as well a little bit and pat yourself on the back. Otherwise, you know, you hurt your own attitude. But yeah, the telemetry, the net promoter score data. And then in the meantime, you've got to be tight with your support team. I'm a mm. huge advocate of being tight with the support team, which means you've got to be in their data with them. I just spent four months working on our incident management, incident response processes, where we made sure we were clearly aligned on what a SEV1, a SEV2, a SEV3, a SEV4 is, what the SLAs were around it, working through the automation. We use a combination of JIRA with Slack with a service called Blameless, which sort of wraps an incident management framework around Slack with a combination of status page IO. <laughs> And so on. Um, so that's all, just all the tooling all, all chained together. I like yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, the first time we used Blameless, 
we were in the middle of a Sev one incident and I was smiling ear to ear. I was like, this is amazing. This is the best run incident I've ever seen. It was completely, you know, I'd accepted the fact that there was pain and it wasn't good, but yeah, it was when you see that stuff working, it's glorious. It gives you more control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It transparency, the team can work together and the dialogue that would have happened before over like jamming people onto a Zoom call or over email is now happening in real time with real collaboration, with structure around it so people know where to play. It was really awesome to see. Long story short, from a quant side, the things that I look at are the telemetry, the support data. So I mm. like to go through it monthly with the team with the support team and with my leaders, the net promoter score every six months. And then of course, like you monitor that retention rate. But yeah, as a product leader, like you usually get beat over the head with retention rate. You don't have to go out and like ask for it. You know, you're gonna you're gonna know. And it's a trailing indicator. Like to me, NPS gives you more early signaling around potential retention problems versus so churn. Forth, yeah, yeah. Versus like actual churn. Like if you're waiting at that point, you've waited way too long. So retention rate is interesting. Win rate is interesting too. Like how are you doing in those POCs is quant data, mm -hmm. but there's so many factors in that, that it's, you know, in and of itself, any one of these can skew the total kind of quant picture of those things really powerful on the qualitative side. There's no substitute for a customer advisory board. I'm on my fourth company where I brought in a customer advisory board. We just did it a couple of weeks ago in Austin and it's but just how many companies do you put on that? I like about 20, like 15 to 20. Any more than that, it gets a little too big. And who do you focus on? What's the yeah, there's a sweet spot. So you don't want the highest person in the organization because they don't know what's going on, you know, at the lower levels where you're actually, you know, can influence the product, the shape of the product. You don't want the person who's actually living and breathing inside the product every day that because they don't have the broader perspective. You want the person in the middle of the organization who's oftentimes going to recommend the purchase rather than approve it and where they have some familiarity with the product and the problem set, but they're not living and breathing every day. They can see the forest through the trees. And how do you structure that organization? Like, or that, that, that group, do you say, every six months we meet, we pay for you to come? Like, how, how's it all work? Yeah, you pay for as much as you can and as much as you need to. Typically, customer handles loan, travel, we handle hotel and expenses while they're there and everything else. And what you do is you meet in person. Typically, you do the big event you know, once a year for mm -hmm. about two days. That's kind of the classic approach, opening dinner, full day, and then like a half day on the end. And it has to be mainly about dialogue and the customers want to learn from each other. They want to talk. Your job is to listen mm. and ask the right questions and to be a good host. It's not to present a ton of content. Mm. And it is incredibly insightful, just massively insightful. Like assign people to take notes, because you will have such a foundation of learning during that period of time that you can pull from through the rest of the year. And also what you're doing is you're finding customer sponsors for features and things. For later, it's like, oh, I know, you know, Susie at Acme was interested in this feature. We really need a customer sponsor for this feature. And we're going to go back and see if she'd be interested in being one of the early, early access customers for this. So we use feature flagging just like everybody else to run an early access program. 
So the cab is incredibly useful. Now, what you want to do, and I've had varying degrees of success of this, I've never hit it out of the park, is turn that into a flowing dialogue over the course of the year. So last year we brought in Slack. We couldn't really keep the dialogue going as much sure. as what we wanted. The thing that did work is we harness industry events, which for us, like the RSA conference, we have a get-together there for the people who have come to the event. They're already going to be there. We can host a lunch, a dinner, a cocktail hour, bring everybody back together at least for a touch in, a touch base. Um, similar thing at Black Hat in Vegas, and we have our own customer event too. So we try and not steal a bunch of their time sure. after that outside of the one big meeting a year. But we try and grab them at different points in the year when they might naturally be there anyways and pull them back in for a low-key event. You know, maybe a, a conversation, a focused conversation or two, but those are just to like keep people talking, keep things going. We might bring them shirts or something at the time to create a little more identity for the program. This year, we're going to focus pretty hard on pulling them more into our Slack channel and using that more. The other thing we do, this is really essential for the team, but we try and take customers from the cabin elsewhere to come in and talk to the team once a month. We call it the Voice of the Customer series. And we basically channel our inner Oprah, you know, and just do this total talk show format, you know, not unlike this. And we let them present out how they use the product to the team. And this not only obviously like builds empathy with the organization when they're building the product later, they can say, oh, right, I remember, you know, Joe did this from Acme Corp. But also what it does is it becomes like a really cool way of providing training to new people. It's like, oh, you're new to, you don't know the customer? Hey, go listen to these three videos of actual customers talking to us of how they use the product. And of course, we do Q&A too, where the team can ask the customer about things and so forth. And it you know, very implicitly communicates to both the customer and our employees that we care, we listen. And that's essential in kind of burning in that customer persona into people's heads. So that's some of the qualitative stuff we do as well. Yeah, I love both of those. Those are great. Like, and I feel like no one talks about how to do that or what to do in order to create that qualitative feedback, right? Like, those are great examples of how to really gather it, like, really execute on that. I love that. We should like do a blog post about both those things at some point. Yeah, for sure. That. I, I, I think there's like a ton of people who get a, a lot of value from from understanding how to yeah. put that together. It was one of those things where it felt like the right thing to do, and then afterwards we realized the angle with like employee orientation and everything else. The big one is feature request that everybody, you know, that's the big thing for like product leaders in particular is getting the feature request right, not over-rotating on it, but being thoughtful about it, synthesizing it, and so forth. And that's like the third and probably most obvious, like non-synthetic sure. and product leader manufactured source of input. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it's also the most obviously tainted at times because there can be so many circumstances around it, you know, whether it's a negotiation ploy, whether it's a real need, but the need is actually being miscommunicated through the game of telephone from like sales or channel partner all the way through and there's actually a bigger business need behind it or customer need that can be satisfied in another way. So feature requests are obvious sorts of like qualitative input, but there's so much bias, potential bias in them that they have to be, you have to be really careful with how you handle feature requests. So when you look at your list of feature requests, are you scoring those on like several different criteria for value that they bring to Tenable as well as to your customer? Like how do you think about 
like the because it's not just like okay, that's a good feature, let's build it. There's probably some additional framework that you put around it. Is, is is that right? You know, I've never seen a like waiting framework with features that I felt performed terribly well. I'm sure somebody's come up with them and it works for them. To me, the process itself of getting all the data in one place, um, allowing folks to self service so they're asking good questions and being transparent as a product organization. So that's really important. But after that, to me, there's no substitute from having a product manager working with the sales engineers, working with support, and having that team work together to prioritize it. Ultimately, it's the product manager's call. But at the end of the day, I'm not a believer in like having a magic formula for some of this stuff. I and mean, there's things like, you know, there's strategic implications, there's business partner things, there's, there's a whole myriad of factors that go into it, architectural considerations and so forth. You know, there's no magic formula that I've ever seen that works. I've seen people try and pull it off, but I'm not convinced it helped them get any further along than having a smart product manager who is open-minded and working thoughtfully with others. Yeah, so it, it replicated. We use a, a slight framework that Mark and I sort of just started to do kind of naturally. And it's funny because I was talking to Andrew from Signal Sciences who we had on the show before, just randomly on, on a walk one day. He mentioned that their framework was kind of similar to ours. Basically what we do is list out all these features and then we score them on three different categories. One is acquire, convert, or retain. And that's just like, do we think that that feature will strategically help us acquire new customers, convert like you know potential customers, or retain existing customers? And then you know score it on a level of effort, which is like the fairly obvious thing to do. That just kind of helps us give a frame of the value that we're going to get by yeah. building these features, right? Because obviously, you know, there's a million other things you're talking about, waiting in the size of the customer, the strategic partnership, like you know, what number of customers have asked for it, how big are they? You know, there's all those pieces because especially early on in the product. You generally need like one of those things more than the other, right? Like maybe you really need like a bigger top of funnel, and so building more stuff for acquiring new customers is important. Or maybe your your funnel's breaking, you need to convert more, right? Or maybe you're you're churning too much, and, you, and so at any point you can kind of focus on some of those features. Yeah, it's, you know that's for sure. I mean, you have to know the category of thing that you're adding in. Yeah, I guess where I have I've seen real problems, and I'm not convinced there's value is like putting in scoring and weightings on scoring and so forth, you know, knowing the type of thing you're building and the why and why relative to something else, super important. At the point where you take all those quant inputs before and like weigh them against the qualitative stuff and you try and come up with like, you know, the crazy quadratic equation that spits out, you know, the answer at the end is where I have heartburn. I also yeah, yeah. It was, reminds me of a prior conversation you and I had where you mentioned a spreadsheet that somebody had, like a product leader had, had before you, right? That they used to like present to the CFO what features they were going to build, right? And yeah, it was like this huge yeah. complicated thing. Yep. And the only reason that that spreadsheet is like that super complicated, you know, algorithm spreadsheet is valuable is because the CFO like, Loves it, right? And like, so you just make it, so you like wait it however you want, right? Yeah. Have the features yeah. come out to whatever you think. Yeah. And then, like, it's 
it's sort of like now you can explain it in CFO language. It's total kabuki theater. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's like let me manufacture enough science behind this in order to validate what my intuition told me like five pivot tables ago. But it's funny because sometimes that's what you need to communicate yeah. it in the organization to get yeah. people to buy in and be like, yeah, this is really well thought out. It's like if you just tell people, yeah, like I know what we need to build, like they'll be like, well, how? You're like, well, I talk to customers. I like look at all the like I look like you know. But then you put a spreadsheet in front of them. And they're like. Oh wow. Yeah. He's got a system. <laughs> I, I think it's you know, going back to it, it's like it's super important to have the data, but there has to be real deal synthesis of the data, qual, quant, business direction, and other things that defies, you know, analysis inside a spreadsheet. And that's what you pay good product managers for. And and it's a delicate balance. Like the analogy I've used is there's PMs who are short order kitchen chefs, right? But they'll give you whatever you sure. want. And the customer orders it up. That's clearly a terrible model, right? You end up with awful products that are like Uncle Willie's one man band, right? Like it does everything, but nothing at the same time particularly well. And then on the other side, you have the omakase model, right? Like you're going to get whatever we give you and you're going to damn well like it. Like that clearly doesn't work with the enterprise either. The way that I've seen this work best is. You know, for me, what we try and do is we have a plan. We know where we want to take the product that's grounded in a big customer problem that's in a worthwhile market that we feel passionate about. And then when we know what we want to build, let's say it's in role-based access control, we have a set of customers that we go to and we test our hypotheses with them. So we don't go to them and tell them to paint on a, on a sure. canvas Bob Ross style, right? <laughs> like, paint a few trees, yeah. let's see what happens. But you go in and say, okay, here's what we're thinking. Are we, do one of these kind of resonate? Are we off here? What sequencing would you give these? Which one's more important and so forth? So the feedback is as good as it is directed. The conversation is as good as it is thoughtful. Sure. Unstructured conversations where you're Bob Rossing it does nothing to inspire the confidence of the customer. It simply means you haven't done your homework beforehand. Yeah, you didn't do any preparation and you don't know what you're talking about. So yeah. 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 So we'd like you to tell us what to build. Yeah. No, that's the short order <laughs> kitchen model. Like that clearly doesn't work. Yeah. And I think even when someone tells you, like, hey, here's this feature that we want, and if you can come back and say, like, great, well, we've thought about that a little bit in the past, and here's the challenges we came up with, or here's like why we didn't do it, or here's what yeah. we're thinking, why we'll do it in the future. I think people do appreciate and they sort of start to respect your perspective and your ability to be the partner that's going to deliver this core technology for them for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a skillful product person in that situation can be very transparent. You know, you can be very transparent and say, yep, totally hear you. Here's why we aren't focused on that right now. This is kind of what it's feeling like. Like, fill me in. Like, where did I go wrong? Where am I off in it? And it requires a lot of confidence and a bit of humility to do that. But I think it's super important. And if, if there's a mistake that I've seen consistently, it's when product organizations try and be too opaque you know, when out of their own, I think their own fear or lack of self-confidence, they default to opacity when they probably should just be more open with their decision-making. It's probably very rational. And the customer, if they understood it, would probably feel a lot better yeah. about that. So, Yeah, that's a great point. Just like communicating, you know, we put out these release notes and things when you, and you announce these features and you'll talk about like what it is 
but it's important to mention why, right? And you know, particularly to your more strategic customers, if there's things you didn't deliver for them yet, like really showing why you 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 aren't doing it yet, I think is it's a great point. Yeah, it's easy. Uh, we had a feature the other day. It's an amazing feature. I'm super excited about that. We'll be working on next year in our agent tech, and we were explaining, and, and you know, there was all these like implied pain points and things that we knew intuitively on the product side that we wanted out of it, but no one was saying what problem it solved for the customer. And you could see it, and it seems like a small thing at the beginning. Well, of course it does X, Y, and Z, but I'll guarantee you if we kept with that like rooted in the technology and what problems we wanted to solve with it, instead of voicing it initially in the voice of the customer and what problem we're trying to solve, the empathy would be lost, we'd be aimless, and we'd misdeliver. It's it's really important to keep that grounding in what's the problem, you know, and ideally in the customer's voice. Yeah, it's a great point. I, I think those different tactics to keep that voice really important in the, in the cadence at which you do that also sounds like an important piece yeah, of it. Yeah, reinforcement. So one of the pieces I want to touch on, I think it's it's really interesting, and, and I don't know that we'll have another guest that's that's done this right so at least so recently. Is Temple recently IPO'd, right? So congratulations, yep. first of Thank all. Thank you. But from a product perspective, like what does that, you know, does that change anything for when you when you are leading up to an IPO? What are you doing that's different? Like how does that how does that impact how you think about product as a product leader? Yeah, yeah. I just read the product leader's playbook for an IPO. Right, right? yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, having been a product leader in a public company, you know, at Norton. I found myself in investor meetings. I had, a, had just an incredible boss and woman uh, leading the organization, Janice Chafin, and she was kind enough to invite me into the investor meetings and really expose a lot of of those questions to me and so forth. So, I that this was is like with the institutional investors, right, of right. That, that are like you know a Fidelity or some large fund that like buys public you know stocks and holds them for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So the I don't I don't think most people even know that that exists. That there's like this sort of relationship. <laughs> you go pitch all these kind of like you know investor analysty types and talk about what you're doing, and they're getting this like insight into your business, right? Like that's like a it's fascinating know, as like a you know as a public markets investor as an individual, you're not doing that, right? Like you're not getting that insight, right? But that's part of what happens with these with the publicly traded companies. You end yeah. up with these long term partners. Yeah. So I mean, a lot of I, I feel like a lot of product in particular is kind of visualizing a future state and working your way back. So that was kind of how I approached it, and. I looked at it and said, first off, is the strategy crisp and clear? Can I say it to an investor who has no grounding in the space, and is it going to resonate? So that was the first work that was done, was on the strategy itself, and really winnowing it down to the core, which for us is a category transformation play called cyber exposure. So taking vol management and moving it into a next-gen level, which we call cyber exposure. So that was the first step. And then winnowing everything off from it, like slicing it down to where that was really the only thing we were doing. So that clarity of message was really important first. And then secondly, we had to make sure there was enough total addressable market in it. So investors would look at it and say, yep, 
I get it. There's enough proof points. You have enough product proof points to validate that strategy. And those opportunities represent a big enough market today and in the future to where I can see the company continuing to grow and turn into a huge company in the future. So laying down enough TAM, total addressable market, was super important too in getting the proof points behind it so it wasn't just, you know, pixie dust, right? Like you have to deliver against it. It has to be believable. Um, so examples there is we introduced container security to have a real proof point around DevSecOps and our thesis we had on ephemeral assets and on cloud and cloud technologies. We took technology we had in passive scanning and basically tilted it hard towards operational technology, which is increasingly targeted by attackers and increasingly connected to IT. This thing called the OTIT collision, where these formerly air-gapped networks that had PLCs, industrial control systems, everything else, are now increasingly rolling right into the IT assets, and they're all increasingly being owned by the CIO and the CISO to create one picture. So we, had to, we introduced an industrial security product in partnership with Siemens. You know, instant validation from a, one of the titans of that space. Mm. So all of a sudden, hey, you've got you know you've got real total addressable market that spans something much bigger, and people start to have valid proof points behind your market thesis of the world's changing, and we're going to help change it. And then it was introducing a product called Lumen, announcing a product early this year, which changes the narrative from one that's been very technical oriented. And you know a lot about vulnerabilities and threats to one that's very business oriented. A conversation about benchmarking, and a conversation about not you know how you're doing in complete terms of managing ten thousand vulnerabilities that are CVSS rated seven point five or above. But hey, you're twenty percent more exposed than other companies in the retail industry. And you're assessing, the key problem there is you're assessing things 30% slower. Here's the three things you need to do in order to improve that. So those were some of the key things we had to do initially. And then came the really hard part. That was actually the easy part. <laughs> the hard part was cleaning up the portfolio. So I tried to pull forward every painful product thing I could think of into a pre-IPO state and do it as fast as I could responsibly so I could let things settle before the IPO came out. Mm. The thesis behind that was, I don't want to be making changes that are big to the portfolio that I'd have to explain to an investor. It's going to put my CFO, my CEO in a bad spot, or at least an uncomfortable one where they have to explain something you know, detailed and technical. And also, I don't want the risk of unintended reverberations of that change you know, flowing through a post-IPO state when we're a public company. Like I'd rather deal with it when we're private, when it's more forgiving. So those were really the big things were, you know, hey, make sure your strategy's tight, you can explain it to everyone. Have proof points and enough TAM, so you have green horizons and blue skies for as long as you can see. And then, oh my God, do everything you can think that might be painful as fast as you can and let it settle so that it's clear sailing afterwards. So so let's dive into that piece. That's really interesting because that feels like a very specific thing that you would be doing pre-IPO, right? Like is trying to kind of get your product portfolio. It's like you need to rip off all the band-aids or something first yeah. before you're out there with like in, in public with open source, right? So, so talk about what, like, what did you do? How did you? What's the framework you used? How did you analyze that? You do it within the context of the strategy and kind of the business problem you're trying to solve. So, after doing the strategy, and you look at it, you say, okay, you know, this other stuff may be sexy, 
but we're not aiming for sex appeal. If we're a Ford F-150, damn it, we're going to be the best Ford F-150 we're going to be. And those things aren't part of our business anymore. So for us, one of the things was a hardware appliance. There was a product that it often- So you, you deprecated that. Deprecated. Yeah. So you stopped selling. stopped selling it. It was probably selling at some, like, you know, a couple million a year, you know, maybe more. Barely. Okay. Yeah. But you're saying you wanted to cut that before you IPO'd because if you're end of lifeing a product that's yeah. even contributing any amount like Absolutely. that in your public, it's maybe it's a problem for the CFO. Yeah. It, it's something you have to explain, right? And there's always going to be things that come up you have to explain, but it's an order of magnitude, right? You want sure. it to be, you want it to be, Things that happen that are surprises as opposed to synthetic surprises, right? Like ones that you manufacture for the markets. Mm-hmm. Like we'll deal with the naturally occurring ones. Yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. going to happen. What you don't want is the synthetic ones that you manufactured simply because you didn't have the foresight to solve yeah. these problems before you jumped on the grand stage, right? Yeah. And like you, you know that like you're going to do that at some point. So you might as well get yeah. rid of it now before yeah. you're like, before it's a thing, before it's hard to do. It yeah. makes total sense. Yeah. So we did all, all sorts of things like that. Brought out new pricing and licensing for mm. Tenable IO, launched Tenable IO, and started to learn how to sell cloud and, and really service the enterprise there. We made changes to the Nessus product line. We um, deprecated the scanning API, which is creating portfolio tension. We had several steps in the Nessus portfolio that we took out at that time, too. So let's just pause right there because I know we talked about this before the show a little bit, but the deprecating of that API was a really interesting piece. So you took an API. That was inside of your core product. That, just tell the story real quick around that. Yeah. So shortly after I arrived, I sat down with the uh, then enterprise head of sales, and basically told me very directly, "We're competing against ourselves, and we're enabling our competition." And I was in consulting mode at this time, and I was taking you know notes furiously as he spoke. I'm like, well, tell me more about that. You know, explain. I said, well. Our customers, our big customers today, oftentimes will go in and we'll try and sell our enterprise product. And they'll say, look, I've, I've already got Nessus. I've already got, you know, I just have it hooked up. I'm using the scanning API and I use the API and I've got it hooked in. I don't need to talk to you. And you're trying to sell me something that's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, candidly, I can pay you twenty or $30,000 and I could get everything I need myself. And uh, there is other scenarios. They can, they can buy this sort of like entry level, like core engine, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have all the management functionality. Leverage the API and plug it into something else. That's, that's right. It's doing the job for them. That's right. Or they create their own harnesses around it, or like. So it's almost as if you had this loss leader, which was your entry level product, right? Right. And then people were just buying up the loss leader. Rather than like also buying it, you know, if you think about the grocery example, right? Like your milk is the loss leader, then you're selling them up on like all the other stuff. So <laughs> a, a little bit, and so we just, had no problem with people. We loved our Nessus sure, customers yeah, and still do. The problem was it was being used in a way that wasn't intended. Someone coming in and buying like five hundred gallons of milk, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're losing much money. Every time. Yeah, yeah, well, it, we weren't so much losing money on it as we were as these customers were duplicating things we'd already built, right? Spending precious time and energy building stuff that candidly we thought we could do better, and spending oh, and so, time so that they, they were, could be spending running the business. So they were adding these things in around your product themselves, right. and right. it's like, and they're iterating and spinning their wheels. And realistically, yeah, they're paying you thirty thousand dollars a year, and they're spending a couple hundred thousand dollars a year on the internal development support. Doing of what these, we were already doing, yeah, repeating it, the effort, yeah. it, repeating the effort, and you know, and that was that's inefficient. 
And clearly we'd like to do that for them. And there's instances we found afterwards where customers didn't even know we had other things available because mm. Nessus is such a strong brand. Like I had two customers up in um, Pacific Northwest recently visit them and they said, oh, like, thank God you did this. We were doing all this work and we didn't even know you had that. Now that's not always the reaction, right? Like there's people who have loved it a lot less. Yeah. <laughs> um, but having said that, the bigger issue we had is we had competitors and particular new competitors who weren't investing anything in the scan engine, anything in the technology itself. Right. And we're basically saying, ah, just pay Tenable you know, for Nessus and we'll do all the rest of it, you know, patting us on the head. And that was a market that candidly we felt like we should own. And enabling the competition in that scenario wasn't a great idea. Now, are competitors going to use our APIs? Absolutely, and that's okay. We're fine with that. But what we didn't want, we had an all-you-can-eat licensing model with Nessus. If they're going to pay, they pay us a fair price for the number of assets, not like kind of collecting together a bunch of engines and then paying us very little for that. So no problem if we, you know, and there's times when we service customers together with competitors. That needs to be okay. Like if the customer hires us to solve the problem, we're flattered they did that. But it has to be fair for everyone. It has to be a fair price. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think, you know, you see some of these examples that are like kind of public, like, LinkedIn ended their API, you know, a while back, and some other companies do the same thing. Generally, because competitors are pulling all this data out, and yeah. so it's hard. So because you know, we talk about an API as a so, such an important piece of a product, especially in a modern context, right? Yep. You know, you need your channel partners to build on top of it. You need other stuff to happen, but there needs to be like some control over, you know, what people have access to, so that you can, you know, offer. You know your additional products and, and keep and keep growing and have that product assortment. So it's a really interesting problem to sort of be faced. And so you you addressed it before the IPO. That's right. In order to like kind of make it a non-problem. Yeah, in an attempt to rectify. And also, you know, look, there's customers who afterwards, you know, are pretty unhappy with that. And some of them went to a competitor, but they paid the competitor a fair price. Mm. I'm okay with that. Sure. At the end of the day, when we were allowing people to, you know, basically value our category so small because we had allowed for this all-you-can-eat model with our really powerful engine and allowing them to use it in a way that wasn't intended, it wasn't good for the customer and it wasn't good for the category. Yeah, you know, even unsustainable. A, unsustainable, right? And. We happen to think that security hygiene, knowing all the assets that you have, knowing their vulnerabilities and managing your exposure is a huge important problem. So there's an element of this, and I don't want to make it sound too grandiose, but there's an element of this which is respecting yourself and respecting your category and making sure that the pricing is fair for everyone. Yeah, I actually looked at those scenarios where the customer said, you know what, I'm really bothered by this, I'm going to go to these other guys. I said, and looked at that, and clearly we'd prefer their business, but at the end of the day, there was a part of me which said, at least the category's winning. Sure. You know, and everyone in the category is responsible that it's healthy. You know, and did you announce it pretty far ahead of time? Was there some other grandfather? Yeah. How did you do that? Yep, we, we provided a year. Oh. A year of advance notice, and there's plenty of opportunities to extend and things like that. So it's not like you just turned it off and said it doesn't exist, like which is I think what LinkedIn did. But basically, you you gave everyone a lot of notice. I think that's a really important piece, right? Like customers, enterprise customers particularly expect, like you can't change things on them that fast, right? And so yeah, had, it's like this change management process. Hey, we're going to do this. It's going to be in a year. Like here's why we have to do it. And and if some of them are upset, some of them are upset, right? That's like part of how it works. Yeah. There's this concept in site reliability engineering called air budgets, which are basically like how many 
errors per you know minute, month, year can a product have? And generally, people like this is like the ninety nine point nine nine percent you know SLA kind of stuff, right? And I think that that concept actually applies beyond like the you know number of website requests or API requests, mm-hmm. but it, it pl- applies here, right? Which is like you're rolling out a new change; it's some pricing. You should expect some number of people to be upset. You know, if it's five percent, great, you're within your error budget. If it's fifty yeah. percent. You've exceeded your error budget, and you need to adjust. Right? Yeah, and so I think you should approach, you know, marketing, product sales with this sort of mindset that change inevitably causes some friction, yep. and you're going to get some pushback. Yeah, the only time when you get a hundred percent happiness is when you're lying to everyone. Right. <laughs> like there's there's an element of this where like. If you show me the product leader where everyone is delighted with them, they're a terrible product leader. Like you're going to make controversial decisions. You're going to have to do things that people don't like. What you hope is that they look at it and say that it's fair and in the best interest of, you know, the business. And like I said before, like in the best interest of the category too. You know, I think everybody who plays in a category should feel an obligation to make it healthy as well and respect it. Yeah. It's really interesting that perspective. Kind of paired with open source is different too, right? Because you know, there's this whole, there's a whole other side of open source, and like everything should be really open source. And you see people, you know, releasing more and more of the the sort of proprietary components of their products into the open source world over time. It's kind of constantly in this f- chasing new and new features that make things you know, the enterprise version enterprisey. Obviously, there's a lot of value in open source, right? Red Hat, you know, sure. recent acquisition of massive uh, size, but it also can, in ways, cause this sort of like race to the bottom, right? Or just like I guess the, the counter to that is you have to it's this race to add in new innovation constantly as you as you sort of pull features from proprietary into open source, and the same thing is true for you know any category. It's like if you have one of your competitors starts a race to the bottom. You know, you have to kind of be constantly innovating with the next level of features and functionality because your things that were three or four years old, those features are now commoditized. Yeah. Right. So you yeah. have to be kind of constantly ahead. For me, both at Norton and and at Tenable, and you know, even felt this way at CrowdStrike to a lesser extent at Foundstone. But as my thinking's evolved as a product leader, my like scenario planning, my horizon planning, always ends up with me looking at the lowest part of my portfolio and saying, if that became completely commoditized and free, what would I be doing now in order to replace it? Mm. And if you head check your game plan against fierce commoditization on the low end, even if you're, you know, if you're wrong, you're happy. If you're right, you're prepared, right? You kind of can't get screwed that way. But I think you know, if you're prudent, you kind of assume that at some point the low end of your portfolio is going to be subsumed into something else, and hopefully you get the chance to cannibalize it. You yeah. know, and and get the chance to make it. You know, maybe if it's no longer a monetization play, it's a customer acquisition play, it's right. a brand play, and everything else, and it spreads you out to new markets and so on. So you're thinking about that like ahead of time. That's something you plan for and sort of evaluate. Yeah, yeah. I just assume cool. that at some point the low end of the portfolio is going to evaporate. So it's kind of funny when, um, as long as like 
your focus is on building customer lifetime value. You know, for me, I don't care. This is one of my quant measurements that I look at to gauge overall success is I try not to get married to any one part of the portfolio, but I want to measure the overall success of the portfolio by customer lifetime value or lifetime customer, LCV, CLV. Sure, yeah. We'll use CLV. I want to measure by CLV. And as long as I'm building CLV and CLV is growing, my MPS is good, retention rates stay healthy, like I honestly don't care what part of the portfolio you know, kind of falls off at some point. If we have a cross sell that doesn't work, it doesn't work. That's okay. That's going to happen. You know, think about how dynamic the market is. There's going to be times when things just don't make sense anymore. And maybe you roll it into the product and make it free at that point. Yeah. You know, and it just becomes a differentiating feature. That's okay. But as long as you're mindful of CLV and you don't become, you know, too married to any one product, if you look at each one as a really drawn out like market thesis, you know, the embodiment of a market thesis, when it no longer holds, doesn't mean you have to kill it, right? And it doesn't mean like in the Norton example I gave before where you're killing it five years in advance, it's like, it's okay, you know, watch your telemetry. If nobody's using the damn thing, shoot old yeller, right? Put a bullet in it. But having said that, your thesis changed. That's okay. You know, watch your CLV and, you know, it really doesn't matter like if one product in the portfolio isn't performing the way it used to. Is the portfolio performing the way you expect it to? Yeah, you know? that's great. Having that perspective is, that's a signal of your experience and you've done this for so long and you kind of have that full portfolio view, right? And you're thinking not just about like product adoption, you're thinking about portfolio life cycle. Yeah. That's like it's a, it's a next level above product management, which is portfolio life cycle, which is probably why you're a chief product officer. <laughs> you know, it makes sense. Yeah, it was it was really interesting to watch Norton. The A V industry, consumer A V became incredibly crowded. Cost of customer acquisition became very high. And all of a sudden you look at it and you're like, and retention rates were pretty much maxed out. It's like, so what do you do? Well, we had good and better. We didn't have best. We introduced Norton 360, mm -hmm. and those decisions were made without me there. But I watched mix shift in the portfolio and ultimately like cross-sell, new cross-sell, like drive continued growth on like a big revenue base from 1.8 million up to like 2.1 billion while I left, purely through mix shift in the portfolio, you know, and Wait, what, incremental cross-sell. Shift? Mix shift, right. Mix shift from good to better and from better to best. In oh, okay. our instance, it was Norton Internet Security up to Norton 360. So so that's just consumers or people upgrading along the way. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay, cool. Right, yeah, you have something more to offer them when they come in and renew. Yeah. You know, hey, there's this thing over here. Like, And some of the people would need the functionality and some there's a segment of the populace who just want the best thing. Yeah, you true. Know? It's security. You need the best. That's right, that's right. <laughs> Great. One more thing I'd love to just touch on is, you know, Tenable's a big organization now, right? Eleven hundred people, I think you said. Yeah, yeah, it's around there. Yeah, yeah, that's that's big. So, you know, how do you think about communicating within your organization, which is like two hundred and fifty people, right, on product and engineering, into these other orgs, and how do you make sure that people understand the product and the product strategy, and how do you how do you drive that? Yeah, it's one of the biggest challenges. I mean, particularly not only an organization that's large, but one that's growing, that's adding people aggressively. And remote. And remote, 
and increasingly international too, it's, um, it's one of the biggest challenges we have. I think it starts out with one of the first things I did when I came in. There's a couple things I did immediately. One is I had to request access to certain things in Confluence. Mm. They're like, oh, we'll give you access. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. Open up the whole thing. Yeah. And we're going to start documenting everything in one place. Like Confluence may be good, bad, or indifferent, but it's what we have. Damn it, we're going to document everything there. Sure. So then getting religion about doing everything in one place and having it all in that place and documenting everything is really important. And then having it open to everyone. Sure. Like all of a sudden, like no one had to manage permissions around Confluence anymore. It makes yeah, things I mean, real easy. That's that's an example of a of information that's often not like incredibly sensitive from like a it's not like your customer's data, right? This right. is this is like your your, your product. Plans. Yeah, it's your plans. Like yeah. you should share that pretty broadly within your organization. Yeah. Let everybody see it. Yeah. And and sense. do most people go into it, you know, are they really gonna avail themselves of it? Probably not, but it's the point that you're going to be transparent. If you're gonna go through a massive portfolio transition, you can't give the organization or customers perfection. What you can give them is transparency. You owe it to them. That's incredibly important. So that's a big piece of it is just you know leaving the door to the factory to the lab open. And do you give everyone in the organization yeah. a Confluence account? Wow. Well, they have access to it. They have access yeah, to it. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's a big piece of it. Weekly roadmaps, it's not everything we're doing, but a tickle. Hey, here's a little narrative around what's happening in the important areas. And you're um, sharing that with the whole in Slack. In Slack. Yeah, we have okay. a product announcement channel in Slack. We pump it out there. We used to do it through email. We moved it to Slack. And You're so modern. Yeah. <laughs> so we had HipChat. We moved to Slack. Um, like every organization. Yeah, in like the world. every other organization. Um, the thing that I'll say that had an immediate impact is we had a video conferencing system that was a bit dated. I brought in Zoom mm-hmm. and immediately. Like things got a lot easier, and we deprecated Hangouts, which turned my laptop into molten lava. Yeah, and you know, core audio D never works. I <laughs> yeah, those changes, getting the right tools was important. Hmm. Opening up the tools, incredibly important, and standardization was big. We do office hours every week on a topic. So one of my lieutenants does an awesome job where topically we bring in a speaker, we do office hours with about 20 minutes of content. And after that, it's all dialogue, Q&A. I do, and it ended up being kind of biannual about roadmaps every four months. And in the meantime, we do a uh, ask me almost anything every month <laughs> where I take questions, I get pelted with questions over Zoom. But that's for, the, uh, for safe, for, safe for work. Yeah, you can't, can't have yeah. an AMA. You gotta have uh, yeah. AMA. AMA. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, they've turned out to actually be uh, a lot of fun. It's funny because we have no one from headquarters on it. It's my product leader who's out in uh, New York, another guy in Phoenix, and it's myself. And they always ask us about the new headquarters we're building in Baltimore, in Columbia, Maryland. And we all look at each other. We're like, next question. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, it's it's really fun. People ask super insightful things. We end up having a really good time on it. Getting the feature request process right. We've been working hard on that. We, I think we finally got to a good approach there. And we do roundtables now, executive roundtables with folks. I used to do roundtables with all my team. I'm down a few people on the engineering side. So I cut out my own roundtables, which hurts. But I usually try and sit down with everybody on my team in small group settings, about 10 people once a quarter. Not happening right now, but I've learned so much from that. I've found great managers who would have went on in anonymity unless I sat down with their team and learned about what they were hmm. doing and kind of experienced the great you know, energy that the team had. 
those are all things. And, and I'll tell you one of the big ones that we started doing last year, which is paid dividends, is we get the whole product team together once a quarter. Mm. And we call it release planning, but it's a lot more than that. We do training there, but that's where a lot of trust is built on the team where we get together and work things out in front of a whiteboard together. And I continually encourage use of the travel budget. You know, 80% of the cost of any product organization is the people themselves. Unless people do really silly things, which I've never seen, you're not going to break your budget on travel. It's sure. just not going to happen with teams getting together to work together. And in, no matter how good your remote playbook is, it's invaluable to get together and work together for three, four days. Yeah. It's just, it's absolutely essential. It like creates a level of trust that you don't get if it's always remote. You absolutely. Just, you have to be in person with people here and again to like create that human connection and let them know you're real. And then that's what kind of keeps it from being like you're just a face on a screen or a snarky Slack message. So totally, totally. So, yeah, those are some of the things we use across the org. We do town halls as well on the product side. And of course, we record all of these and post it to the internet. But we do product team town halls where we go through all sorts of stuff. The last one we just did was Jira cleanup, you know, and getting our Jira projects right for better automated reporting and predictability incident management, feature request processes, and we're moving towards a, uh, a deep work session, partially which you influence with yeah, the deep work book, deep work. like a distraction-free Thursday so that good. we're going to be testing where you know we cut back on meetings, provide guidelines for folks to protect their, their focus, deep work time. So yeah, you know the town halls work pretty well too for covering topical things that aren't going to come up naturally. It's cool. And then I know you also, you personally focus some amount of effort on really good storytelling. I, I love storytelling, so it's a personal passion of mine. But um, I think it's a really important thing for product leaders to be able to tell the story, though. It's so important. So Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast, and Scott Belsky from Adobe was on it and made that point, that that narrative, particularly in when you're going through a big transition, whether it's a startup or whether you're in the messy middle, as he calls it, the trough of sorrow, or when you're going through a huge transition like we have, where it's a product line transition, a portfolio transition, super important to be able to tell stories around it so people can make sense of everything that's happening. I mean, we've thrown a lot at them and bringing in the stories makes it real for people. Everybody can relate to that. And you know, the last thing I'll say like that I left out of the comms is I go out in the field. I have to because mm. the stories are good. But you've got to show up as the product leader sometimes, and I have to build trust with the sales work too. I'm putting them through a lot of things. I've killed products. I've introduced this crazy new cloud SaaS offering that's uncomfortable at times with new licensing. Like, You've got to be out in the field and be building empathy and learning from what customers in the field in your field team is saying. And that's something that I've really added in the past um, like three, four years and I've learned a ton from it. And those become stories that I bring back sure. to in my town halls and to the product organization. So yeah, that's, you know, it all ties back into that storytelling too. Yeah, and, and just a little bit about how you personally have tried to improve your storytelling ability and some of the, I think you've mentioned to me in the past, some of your influences around storytelling. Can you just like talk a little about those? Yeah, um, there was a great training I did during my time at Symantec. And one of the key things that I learned from that is to engage people's senses. And that that's one of the things that really pulls people in. It makes it feel real. It makes it feel authentic. So whether it's saying how something tastes or how something feels or how something smells or what it looked like, you know, the colors, I think a lot of people spare the details 
in the story, but that's what makes them real. That's what makes them engaging and so forth. And I practice a lot on my six-year-old son, you know, so we get a lot, I get a lot of practice storytelling there. And I find that that works really well. And I think also changing voice intonation, Hmm. even in a business setting is incredibly important, whether it's simulating the voice of God by covering a microphone. And there's some speakers that also are really impressive to me for their use of, of white space of pauses. Um, Jack Kornfeld, who we were talking about Mm -hmm. beforehand, an amazing Buddhist teacher. If you listen to him speak, he's got an incredibly soothing voice, as you would imagine, but he's not afraid to pause and let a point land and settle and make you kind of hungry for the next word. So that white space is incredibly important too. People need to think and digest and so forth. So that tactic, I think, as I become a more confident presenter, not being afraid to let something land and let a little uncomfortable silence come in and so on. And uh, also to know when to bring in somebody else's voice and to let the audience take a breath and hear somebody else's voice come in, I think is super important. I'll use that with kids too. Like I'll only talk for a few minutes if I'm telling a story to my son and his friend, and then I'll ask them what, you know, all right, the adventures are going off on a big trip. What did they pack for lunch? It's immaterial to the story, but they had to think and re-engage and asking questions of the audience and pulling it back in and making them a part of the story, I think is, is really important too. That's cool. I love that. So you know, one last thing we try to do in these shows is just give our guests a chance to quickly kind of like pitch what their company does, partially because it's just it's just helpful to hear how other people describe their business and like when you go into a company, what's the you know two, four, five minute you know pitch that you give so that somebody understands like what is tenable? Yeah. We're the foundation of a great security program. Hell, we're the foundation of even a mediocre security program. If you want to protect an environment, if you're someone who's ever endeavored to lock down an environment or even provide a minimal level of protection, it starts by knowing what you have, everything that you have, from your desktop to your laptop to your service to your API endpoints to your containers that are around for 20 seconds to your, you know, your industrial control system, which is around for 20 years and you can't patch, so help you God. Our first job is bringing all of that in one place and doing it in a way that's efficient, that's accurate, so you can get that single source of truth, so you know what you have. From there, our job is to intelligently analyze each one of those things for vulnerabilities, for exposure, for ways in which they can be compromised. Knowing what you have and knowing where you could be breached is the foundation of security. Like, There's nothing more fundamental than that, no matter how many times you may hear about Fancy Bear or about what the Chinese are doing or anything else. Like, It starts with knowing what you have and knowing where it's vulnerable. The trick on top of that is typically you end up with a huge number of things and a huge number of vulnerabilities to protect. The key there and a longstanding problem is prioritization. How do you figure out what to do? What are the few things that truly matter? And that's the piece we've been working on. And bringing that into a narrative that not only technical people can understand and they can get home to dinner on time because they had five things instead of 5,000, that's a big part of what we're working on now. And, And then giving them a way to have a narrative with upper management who cares about cyber hygiene now, who cares about security health, but they can't get down in the weeds. They need a way of understanding it in terms of analytics, benchmarking, and so on. 
that's the kind of final missing piece. And we think if we do all of those things well, we help you understand everything, focusing on the things that matter that'll prevent a breach, enable people to talk about security health in a way that's intelligible, even to not so cyber savvy people, we think we've got a shot at taking the discipline of security and turning it into something that's as canonical as like gap standards for accounting. Mm. So that's what we're after. We're, we're aiming to really transform this category of vulnerability management into a full discipline of managing cyber exposure in a way that everybody can understand it and hopefully creates this universal standard for understanding security health. Dave, that was perfect. Thank you so much for your time. This was incredible. I really do appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Lots of fun. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.